Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are glad you're listening today and we hope you'll give us a call or perhaps send us an email. This show is about what interests you, that is your garden, your questions, plants you want identified, uh, let's see, suggestions for uh, having a good garden, you name it. Uh, we are happy to talk about it. And so our phone number, if you want to write, if you write it down, is 845-5689, 845 5689 or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu I always like to remind folks that if you have a question someone else probably does too and there's no such thing as let's put it this way there's no such thing as a stupid question but there are stupid answers so I'll worry about the second half of that and you just ask away uh, we want to talk about a couple things going on around town uh, just to kick off today uh, the Texas A&M agronomy uh, department it has a corn maze it's the Aggie corn maze uh, there's a pumpkin patch, they, they have some maroon cotton planted, uh, sunflowers, lots of good photo opportunities. Uh, and this will be going on October 21st, which is tomorrow from 4 to 7 p.m. And the 22nd in the morning from 9 to 11 and afternoon from 3 to 7. 23rd from 1 to 6 p.m. Uh, good night, there's a lot of dates. 28th. Uh, 4 to 7, 30th and 31st also. So you can pre-order your tickets and uh, you'll need to fill out a waiver for the kiddos to go through the maze. Uh, they, the location for this will be on uh, F and B Road behind the vet school. Uh, it's 2747 F and B Road. Uh, but the kids would love to go out there and kind of wander through and, and have fun. Uh, so if you use a, if you go to a, the website to uh, sign in, you can use the promo code CORN at the checkout to get $2 off each ticket. And of course that benefits to the, the agronomy group. Uh, so I hope you uh, take a chance. If you've got some kiddos and, or take an opportunity, if you've got some kiddos to go out there and uh, let them have some fun in the maze. Uh, now tomorrow, Friday, uh, the Millican Reserve Farm uh, is hosting a tour from the um, uh, a garden club, our local garden club, and the uh, event is from 4 to 5 p.m. And so that will be, uh, let's see, Millican Reserve down south of College Station. It's on FM 2154. Uh, that's the address at least. Uh, so it's about a two-acre farm and it's a walk through the farm for all ages. Uh, they're going to have uh, information there. Uh, Farmer Kenny or Alexander uh, will be talking about the ins and outs of how farmers grow healthy crops. And they'll have some fun game, uh, game related uh, activities on the tour. So I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, let's see. If you want more information, you can go to millicanreserve.com. Millicanreserve.com. Dot com. So uh, I think uh, you will find that uh, that's one of the places, by the way, that offers a uh, CSA um, 
produce. And what that means is community-supported agriculture. So instead of a farmer planting crops and then taking them to the market to sell, uh, you sign up and purchase a, a, a share, essentially. Uh, and then through that period of time, whatever is in production at the farm, you get a supply of that. Uh, to, to take home. So what's happening there is you're getting a variation of local grown vegetables all through the year and also the farmer has some seed money uh, to offset uh, well let's say the vicissitudes of nature. You know how it is with farming. Uh, terrible hard freeze, uh, blazing hot, no rain. Where do we see that? Uh, and crop failures can happen and so uh, this just allows uh, the uh, individual, you and me, to share uh, with the farmers and support our local agriculture in doing that. I think it's a good idea. Give that one a try. Uh, also going on uh, around town, there's always the farmers markets every Tuesday at noon is the South Brazos County Farmers Market. Uh, and it's on the corner of University and Glen Haven. So if you head out to the bypass before you get there on the right, Glen Haven Street across from Scott and White Clinic. Uh, then there is a uh, South County Farmers Market, South Brazos County Farmers Market, every Friday at noon at the same location. So Tuesday from noon to five, and Friday also noon to five for those two markets. There's Farm Fridays out on Tabor Road, uh, which is FM 974. Uh, there's a market out there, 2861 FM 974, on Fridays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m lots of things and of course the uh, the local is out at the Stella Hotel uh, that's what they call it the local every Tuesday through November 29th every Tuesday through November 29th from 4 to 7 p.m. and that's out 4100 Lake Atlas Drive uh, lots of different kinds of vendors um, not just not just produce, but a lot of different artisan vendors uh, make up the hub of that particular market, the local, out by the Stella Hotel. That's in the traditions area. Uh, and then, of course, our farmer's market on Main Street on Saturday, uh, downtown Bryan, and that one uh, is uh, a really, uh, it, it's a fun one as well. There's, there's often food trucks and uh, lots of different kinds of produce and other things that are uh, part of that. So I hope you can make one of those and uh, again, support our local and regional uh, producers uh, in that way. Our phone number is 979-845-5689. And you can also reach us at Garden Success at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is inviting the public to their November meeting, and that is on Wednesday, November 9th. Of course, it comes with a program. It's at 6.30 p.m. at the Brazos, Valley Mu Brazos Museum of Natural History out on Briarcrest in Bryan. And this month, the program will be I Spy Birds and Wildlife in Alaska. I spy birds and wildlife in Alaska. Admission is free for the Rio Brazos Audubon Society meeting program. Uh, let's, see. let's go to the emails and look at a couple of emails that have come in. Uh, the first one, uh, Terry uh, writes. Uh, Terry writes about a sago palm that they rescued as a pup 
pup from the freeze. Now, a pup is a little baby plant that forms on the base of the mother plant. Uh, agave, for example, you've seen the big agave and then little ones growing around it. Those are pups. And sagos do the same thing. Sago is also called cycad. Uh, and this sago palm, they saved a pup from the base uh, when the freeze perhaps killed the top. And the question is, now do we put it in the ground or do we put it in the garage whenever you get a freeze and plant it in February? So what I would say is you never know the winter you're going to have. You are probably okay planting it in the ground and it would do just fine. Uh, but if we were to have a, another um, uh, 2021 February freeze, uh, I guess you could go over and cover it because it's a smaller pup, not a giant sago. But uh, in that case, if you want to be extra conservative with the plant, then I would leave it in a container outside. And when we have a freeze, go ahead and move it inside the garage. And, and I wouldn't wait for a February level freeze, uh, February 21 freeze, uh, I would do it whenever it's going to get down in the mid-20s, for example. And the reason is this. When a container sits on top of the ground, that whole soil mix volume and roots of the plant in the container is pretty much going to get down about as cold as the air does or closer to it. When a plant is in the ground, the warmth of the earth and soil everywhere is 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 keeping those roots from freezing, but in a container, that's not the case. And so, uh, Terry, I think you could go either way. I think if I were mine, I'd go ahead and get it planted because fall planting is an advantage. But if you're going to do that, just be ready just to protect it as an extra measure. In general, we don't cover sagos all the time. Uh, they can take some cold, but um, not like we had when it was, uh, what, down seven degrees or whatever it got down to in your area uh, at that time. So uh, let's see, I had a question uh, came in from John. And uh, John has some grass burrs. Uh, and it's uh, sent a picture, a nice, lovely, excellent picture of grass burrs. Uh, and grass burrs, he wants to know what to do. He drives. He drags over them a sack uh, to try to get the burrs out. And people have done this. So you imagine like burlap or something like that, maybe weighted down just a bit, uh, and you drag it over them. As, well, not even necessarily weighted, uh, and they catch in the burlap, and you get a lot of those burrs, which are the seeds of the plant, out. Of course, as John acknowledges, you never, you're not going to get them all out at, by any means. And so he wants to know: is there a chemical control? Uh, and how and, and uh, what do you use and when and how to do it? Well, I'm going to start from the cultural. When we answer questions, we try to approach it from an IPM type approach, IPM being an entomological concept. But it basically, uh, in horticulture, we call it earth kind. Uh, and so what that means is first we try to avoid the problem, and then we look at cultural means to manage the problem. And then when we have to, we can step in and spray with the less toxic options that are available. So starting from um, uh, avoiding the problem, uh, that would mean, you know, whenever you see uh, an area with grass burrs, uh, don't just mow it and blow those seeds all over to the, where they can ex extend to other areas. Uh, that is somewhat of an avoidance. The uh, more appropriate thing for grass birds would be some cultural techniques. And grass birds love a 
poor soil, just if you imagine a sand that doesn't have a great nutrient level in it, uh, grass burrs are going to proliferate more in that than they would uh, in a richer fertilized area. It's kind of counterproductive, but uh, counterintuitive, but uh, it, it's how it works. Now, if you fertilize and water properly, your lawn will get denser and denser and it will choke out the grass burr seeds as well as most other weed seeds. And when I say choke it out, what I mean is block light from hitting the surface so when a seed, seed is there, it's not able to sprout and come up uh, and, and establish the weed. And if it does, the grass is so thick that it's, it's under intense competition when it tries to do that. So the best control of grass burrs is to mow water and fertilize as it is with most weeds. Uh, that when I say the best control, I mean the easiest first step. Uh, so that is one thing I'd recommend. Now if these are peripheral areas where you just don't get water out too much or you don't want to pay to water out there, uh, then you're going to probably have to, to uh, go to other measures. And there's not a good post-emergent for grass burrs in a lawn because our products for weed control tend to, the post-emergence, uh, some of them kill everything, some of them uh, just kill grass. And if it kills grass, then it's going to kill your lawn along with the grass burrs. Uh, now, if maybe if you have an area that's intensive grass burrs, you could just spray it, and get rid of everything there, and then replant the lawn in that area. That, that would be an option. But what most people do for grass burrs is they use a pre-emergent product. One that prevents the seeds from successfully germinating and establishing. There are a number of those out there on the market. Uh, the key is to get them out at the right time. And I would say probably late, uh, no, I'd say mid-February is probably a good time to start with those. I believe grass burrs uh, sprout a little bit later than some of our weeds, but I, I would need to check that to be sure. Uh, and if you give me a call at the AgriLife Extension office or send me an email there, I can actually look, look up uh, the uh, soil temperature germination for these and then give you a better timing for your pre-emergent. Uh, but in general, I'm going to say mid-February. Uh, you want to apply it evenly over the area according to the label. The amount it, uh, the label says is the amount you should use in, per given area. Don't double up or anything. One of the challenges with some pre-emergent herbicides is they can inhibit the rooting of the grass plant. So your St. Augustine runner is crawling across the surface, and that soil at the surface, if you applied it right, has a nice solid uh, dose of the pre-emergent herbicide soaked into the surface. So when the grass root tries to go in, it, we say it becomes a clubbed root. It, it looks like a caveman club on the end, uh, and it doesn't go down and establish so the plant can't get water and nutrients. And uh, if you if you add to that a little bit of diseases further back down the, the runner, uh, then you got a real problem. Uh, now, when you apply these at the label recommendation, the proper way, water them in the proper way, uh, that is minimized. Uh, but I've known folks that, you know, a tablespoon is better than a teaspoon. And, uh, and instead, uh, if you just back off a little bit, uh, I've seen some lawns that 
serious damage from from these kinds of herbicides being misused and misapplied. So that would be the case. There's a number of different products. Again, email me or call me at the AgriLife Extension office and let me send you a list of what is uh, available out on the market or you can go to a, a knowledgeable um, a, a business that, that sells these products and uh, they can advise you on what they have. So that's, that's the grass burr issue. And really, a lot of what I just said there applies uh, to all the weeds we, we deal with. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Okay, let's see. I want to talk about, uh, for just a moment, uh, some of the cool season flowers that need to or can go in right now. Uh, we talk a lot about vegetables on the show, but uh, I like to also mention our flowers. You know, when things cool off and we get a freeze, which is going to occur here probably a month or so, uh, you can't predict the weather, but I think uh, last time I checked with the historic weather data for our area, our average first freeze was about December 2nd. Uh, and so essentially, say the end of November, if you want to be a little safer, uh, is when you need to uh, be prepared for a freeze to occur. Well, we have cool season flowers that we can plant now that the temps are still mild, uh, not the summer heat and not freezing cold. Uh, when we plant them in these mild temperatures, they grow fast, which is important. You want to have a good flower plant so that the leaves can produce the carbohydrates necessary to have a lot of flowers on it. Things like um, uh, dianthus uh, or sweet william as it's called there's many types of that some are very low growing and compact some like the amazon series get very tall very beautiful uh, snapdragons snapdragons come in more compact forms as well as uh, taller forms uh, if you want a nice cut flower the very tall snapdragon types make a beautiful cut flower as well uh, stock uh, that's a cool season flower most people don't grow a uh, nice faint uh, fragrance. Stock is is uh, a good choice. Uh, calendula, uh, sort of a daisy looking flower in terms of flower form, uh, but it does really well. By the way, the petals and calendula are edible, so makes a nice addition to a salad. Uh, let's see, alyssum. Alyssum is the one that has, it's just like a lava flow of white blooms. Uh, that's the way I would describe it. It's an annual and it just spreads out very slowly uh, with this mass of white blooms. Uh, that supports a lot of our beneficial insects too, by the way. Uh, nasturtiums, another one uh, that it that is edible blooms. Uh, nasturtiums are very unusual looking leaves and blooms and uh, they will do well in cool season. And lobelia is another one that does pretty good uh, in the colder weather. Of course, uh, flowering cabbage and kale, these are are uh, just essentially the same as our edible cabbage and kale, except these are types that have been developed for their uh, foliage beauty. Uh, they're multicolors from the typical blue-green-gray look of of their family, cabbage, kale, all have that, that color that we're familiar with. But these bring in uh, burgundies and uh, just, uh, I don't know if a pink, kind of a pinkish purple. Uh, I'm color challenged when it comes to describing colors. So 
they they're really attractive. And by the way, the um, the um, um, ornamental uh, kales have beautiful yellow bloom stalks that come up in the spring, just like your broccoli would if you didn't pick it. Uh, and these uh, are, uh, if you have a kind of a purplish maroon colored plant and beautiful yellow stalks rising above it up in the air with their yellow blooms, uh, that is really attractive also. Now most of these are pretty uh, uh, cold hardy, but the ones I've just mentioned, with the exception of cabbage and kale, if you're going to have a, a pretty hard freeze, you, you're going to want to cover those up just to protect them. They are not absolutely go through every winter without a problem. Cabbage and kale are very hardy. They do well. And as we get into, oh, I would say, a little closer sometime in November, uh, pansies and violas can go in. Now, I know people are planting them now, and that's fine. Uh, they just take a, a little bit colder weather. And uh, so I like it to cool off a little bit on those. And there's so many colors in, in pansies and violas. So these are all things that you can do uh, now for to have a beautiful flower garden. Uh, I want to mention a different kind of plant, too. And that is the biennials. Biennials start their life cycle uh, one season and finish it uh, the next. So, for example, our blue bonnet is the prime example. Those seeds are sprouted. They're going to sit there as little small, not so noticeable plants over the winter. And in spring, they grow large and bloom profusely and then die. And that's what a biennial does. So we have some plants that we, we can use as biennials here. Uh, one of them uh, is the poppies, or are the poppies. Uh, poppies come in many types and forms. Uh, the breadseed poppy does very well here. The corn poppy, or Flanders field poppy as it's sometimes called, does well here. Uh, California poppies do, do well, and they're a totally different looking plant. Uh, and then the Shirley poppy, Iceland poppy, these are all ones that you can grow here, and they're very, uh, very interesting blooms. But we plant those seeds in the fall. Uh, little plants come up. Make sure when you see them come up, you notice what the seedlings look like because you might be tempted to weed those out, not knowing what you're weeding out. Uh, and then they bloom in the spring. Another good biennial uh, would be larkspur. Larkspur is a very tall bloom spike, um, and it is a great cut flower, and it's easy to grow. Uh, the standard color is a bluish purple purple color. Uh, there are uh, you can buy them in pinks and, and whites and, and different shades of blue, uh, and they they're a, a wonderful one to grow. Plant them now, and you'll have a much better show in the spring. Uh, a lot of these people do plant sometimes in late winter, but it's better to start them early where they have time to make a better plant so they can have a better bloom show. And then finally, I'll, I'll just mention sweet peas. They're not a biennial, but our area is mild enough to carry them through the winter. And for the same reasons I mentioned earlier, planting them in the fall, getting them going, uh, and then having them bloom in the spring, it creates a, a better bloom show. And there's some old-fashioned types that have nice fragrance. There's all kinds of colors of sweet peas you can grow. They're going to want something to climb on. So any kind of a little fence or structure that they can climb on uh, will, will be uh, helpful. So that's quite a bit of flower and quite a bit of blooming uh, that you can do, uh, or, or bloom planting that you can do at this time of the year. 
Well, our phone number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, let's see, I want to talk a little bit also about vegetables. Um, we're we're in about one of the best times for planting vegetables. I would say oh, maybe late September through mid to late October uh, is is a, a huge time for our cool season garden. Um, if you are lucky enough to find uh, artichoke transplants, uh, this is still a good time to plant those. They go through our winter most of the time just fine, uh, but if we have a real hard cold uh, freeze, you want to throw a cover over them for a night or two, uh, that's a good idea. But they, in general, are pretty hardy. Uh, beets, uh, getting toward the end of their time to be planted, but uh, you can still get in a planting of those. Uh, they're not the hardiest of our cool season vegetables, but uh, they will they will do okay. Uh, and then there's all the blue leaf vegetables, broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbage and kale and kohlrabi and Oh, what did I forget? Okay, collards uh, also. Uh, they all can be planted now, and I would go ahead and do so sooner rather than later. Um, the further we get, like let's say you get into mid-November, you can plant them then, but in general the weather is so cold that they don't develop very fast, and so it takes longer to get uh, the head of broccoli or whatever you planted the the plant particular type of cold crop for. Uh, and so planting sooner rather than later is a good idea. We are in prime time for planting carrots. Carrot seeds can be a little slow to germinate. And remember with carrots, as with lettuce, uh, you want to scatter the seed on top of the soil, moist soil, pre-moistened soil, and then gently press them into the surface uh, and maybe occasionally mist them a little bit to keep them kind of moist and they will germinate and grow uh, that way. They need light to germinate, specifically the red wavelength of light is uh, the one that's most helpful for those kinds of seeds to germinate and uh, that would, those kind meaning carrots and lettuce. There are other plants that are that way but those are the two primary vegetable garden plants that we have. So if you bury your carrot seed a half inch deep you won't see carrots. Um, let's see, what are some other things we can grow now? Well, chard, uh, some people are still planting chard. Just remember when we get a hard freeze, it's going to hammer it back. You can try some covers to help it out. Chard's about uh, like the beets when it comes to hardiness because they are very, very closely related. Uh, if you haven't planted garlic, we're in prime time for planting garlic cloves. Uh, so if you've never tried growing garlic before, you should. There's a, a lot of different kinds of garlic. Some do better than others, uh, but that it's a fun thing to grow. I would recommend you give it a shot. Uh, lettuce, is this is prime time for it. It likes cool seasons and it grows fast. And speaking of grow fast, we have a number of Asian greens that grow fast too. One of them being uh, bok choy. Uh, some t and some uh, cultures call pak choy, uh, but that particular plant in 28 days you can have you can have something to eat on a lot of the varieties of of that one. So I would recommend trying those. Uh, if you want some flavor for your salads, arugula, uh, mosh, which is called corn salad, and sorrel, uh, which gives a lemony tang to the to the flavor, uh, those can all be planted now as well. And I'd recommend doing that. You know. Uh, I grew up and a salad was basically um, 
chunks of tomato that had been refrigerated and therefore didn't have that nice aromatic smell, uh, and iceberg lettuce, gnarly, watery uh, iceberg lettuce. Perhaps a little sweet, but uh, not a light to write home about. Uh, now we have so many greens that we can put in a salad. Uh, and by doing that, you can add all kinds of flavors. The, the arugula has a sort of a nutty flavor, and when it's tender and young, uh, as it gets older, it can get kind of skunky. Uh, that's the best word I can describe for it. But it's a little hotter, a little bit uh, stronger. Uh, but you just use less in, in that case. In fact, I made some sandwiches this week uh, using uh, just spinach and arugula as the greens on it, and they were delicious. It was really good. Uh, mustard can be planted at this time. Uh, it's, a, it's very tolerant of the cold. We have the standard large-leafed, broad-leafed mustard types that you probably are familiar with, and then several finely cut mustards, uh, some, again, among the Asian vegetables that I keep telling you we need to plant more of, uh, that uh, range in their strength. You know, mustard has a, a sharp taste to it, and uh, that whole family of plants ranges a lot. Something like bok choy is a very mild, uh, a very mild plant, but mustard can get kind of strong. If you haven't planted bulbing onions yet, we can do that now as well. Uh, we're a little late for for the um, uh, peas, the cool season peas, English peas, uh, snow peas, snap peas. Just a little too late. Next, make a note next year, the late September, you can you can get those uh, in the ground. So th that's a number of different things. Well, we could throw in radishes and turnips. Uh, don't delay, but if you get those in, you can also get some good yields from those. The the two keys, uh, actually, there's a number of things that are important, but I would say that the two most important things for your vegetable garden is number one a good quality soil. That means if you got a heavy clay, then mix a bunch of compost in it. G make a raised bed. So when it does rain a lot, which it can do around here, uh, you, your excess water drains away and you're not, you don't have standing water in a swamp around your plants. Uh, so good quality improved soil, whatever it takes. Take a soil test, add the nutrients. Uh, just adding the compost helps with the um, uh, structure of the soil. It helps with the internal drainage of the soil and over time adds nutrients, so that's good. So soil number one. Number two, sunlight. Uh, if you don't give the kind of plant, vegetable plant, that you're growing enough sun, it's not going to perform. Now, the, the crops that produce fruit and roots. So think of a tomato and a carrot. Uh, it takes a lot of carbohydrates to build that tomato or to make that carrot. And so you need a really good amount of sun on the leaves in order for it to successfully do that. Uh, so if you put those, I say roots and fruit, if you put them in, in a little too much shade, it's, it just is going to be very disappointing for you. Uh, the leafy greens they can tolerate less shade. Now they want sun, or excuse me, less sun. They want sun, but they're not building the roots and fruit, and so they're just enough to keep the plant growing and healthy. And so if you look out in your yard or your garden bed areas, and you got an area that's like full sun, and then as you move across here, it becomes more and more in the shade, put your leafy greens over in the shady area, 
They're, it's not their favorite spot, but they'll tolerate it and uh, let your roots and your fruits have the sunlight. Uh, that's why we like containers also. Uh, you can grow a lot of things in containers. Last year I grew uh, carrots in a two and a half gallon container. Uh, you got to keep it moist and so they'll keep growing, uh, but uh, make they do really well in a container. Uh, lots of our cool season, pretty much all the cool season vegetables can be grown in a container uh, if, you, if you just keep the soil adequately moist, which is much easier to do in the cool season than it is in summer when it's 100 degrees uh, sun is blazing down and it hadn't rained in five weeks. So just a few tips uh, for your vegetable garden. Uh, always make sure your soil has adequate nutrients. If you haven't had a soil test, uh, now would be a good time to do that. Uh, for example, um, the um, soil testing lab here at Texas A&M State Soil Lab, uh, it, this would be a good time to take a sample in. Uh, not quite as busy in the lab this time of year. And so you want to take a sample correctly. So it's a mix of the soil in the area that you're wanting uh, to know the content of that soil. Uh, you don't want to just take it in one spot. If you're taking a lawn sample and you happen to go over there to that green area on the lawn where Fido stopped last spring, uh, then that is not going to be a representative of your whole lawn. And you want a representative sample. Uh, if you go to soil testing, dot tamu dot edu all our agrilife uh, sites end in uh, dot t tamu dot edu and so soil testing one word uh, fire ants uh, uh, let's see plant plant clinic uh, there's a lot of, of sites where you can get good help and information uh, but the soil testing on there look for the urban soil test form now, I know you may live in North Zulch and say, I am not urban. Well, if it's a yard, that mean, that's what urban is talking about. Uh, the, in, instead of uh, looking at the soil test uh, like it's a hay pasture, uh, the lab you can check off. It's roses, it's vegetables, whatever kinds of horticultural crop or, or site you have, uh, and it will uh, give results accordingly. Uh, but the urban soil test form is the one you want to use. Fill it out carefully, follow the instructions on the form for how to take a soil sample, and drop it off yourself at the lab. You're here local, or you can mail it in if you want. Uh, but it, the lab is right behind the vet school, uh, pretty close to the train tracks. So that, that gets you in the general area. All right, our number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's go back. I want to go to look at the email. Now, I've had a, a number of emails come in, uh, and there's kind of a general theme, and the, the general theme is my tree's dying. Um, <laughs> we, we are still seeing the results of both the February 21 freeze and the summer of 22 drought. Uh, what do we have? How many 40-something days above 100 or something like that? And or, and or almost no rain. And, and it was just, it was crazy. Uh, so those, those combined to weaken a tree. Uh, trees are pretty resilient in general. If they've been growing on a site, 
They obviously like where they are. If they keep growing, get getting better. Uh, but when you stress them, yeah, it weakens them. And that stress can be cold damage. Uh, it can be radial splits in the trunk. Um, it, it, uh, those, those things over time can be part of a combination that creates the perfect storm in which the tree uh, starts to succumb. Um, a tree needs to continue to produce carbohydrates to maintain its strength and be able to grow, and it needs moisture and sunlight to be able to do that. What we're seeing in a lot of trees is uh, dieback from the tops. Uh, sometimes the entire tree turns brown, seemingly overnight. It's not overnight, but it, it, it's fast. Uh, and these are almost always related to the total collapse of that tree's uh, system of moving water from the roots uh, up to the top. Uh, different things can exacerbate it. There, uh, for some plants, some woody plants, there is a bacteria that gets in the plumbing of the plant and clogs it up. So think of it as a wreck on the highway. The cars can't get through, and in this case, the water can't get through. No water makes it up to the top, and you see the symptoms of drought as that plant is being killed by that. With things like oaks especially, we have a disease called hypoxylin canker that is present out there in the environment. It's somewhat of a ubiquitous uh, organism, but when the plant gets stressed, it has its opportunity to move in and essentially to kill entire branches or often to kill the entire tree. And you see the bark falling off. There's kind of a dusty uh, olive drab material behind it. You rub your finger across it and it comes off on your finger. Uh, but at that point, it's too late to do anything. And with most of our tree problems, by the time you see visible issues on the tree, you're getting a little late. Uh, it would have been much better prevented than, let's say, uh, fixed later on. And so uh, that's why we take measures to avoid stress on our trees uh, in order to help them. Now, if, if we're talking after the fact, uh, all you can do is uh, make sure that it doesn't lack for water if we go through a, a drought. And again, in the cool season, they use very little water, uh, especially if they're deciduous. And even a tree that uh, still has leaves on it, uh, the cool weather and the periodic rainfalls are almost always enough to get them through winter without a need for supplemental watering. Uh, but when we get into warm season, helping them out a little bit uh, is important. And that's one of the issues we deal with uh, on, on our trees. And I suspect we're going to see more hypoxylin canker. I hope I'm wrong about that, because that's just a prediction. Uh, but I think we're going to see more of it going forward because of the stress uh, that we just had. Uh, there are other things that can affect trees, but that's the number one. Now, there is something else going on around town. Uh, by the way, our number, 845-5689, and by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Give us a call. Uh, as you drive around town, you may notice, as you look at trees in landscapes, especially commercial areas, you'll see the the bottom part of the tree just going straight across horizontally the leaves are browning and and curling up and essentially turn into toast uh, and then as you go up in the tree there's a fairly distinct line and above that there's no problem at all uh, sometimes you see a tree where one side of it is doing that uh, mostly lower on the tree but one side is doing that and the rest of it looks good. And, and what is causing that is uh, our high sodium water 
being sprayed through irrigation out around the tree. Uh, if your pressure is high for the type of sprinkler head or spray head you have, uh, then it typically will create a mist when it's too high. And our pressure is very high here. Uh, and so the mist sort of floats upward uh, and is able to reach the lower part of the tree, but, but not go all the way to the top, of course. Uh, another thing is sometimes the sprinkler itself, like with a rotor, is spraying high enough to hit a section of the tree. And however it's happening, uh, the continuous, every time we watered the grass this summer and as we moved into late summer, uh, every time we watered, the tree is getting subjected to that. And by the end of the season, it, cumulative effect of it is just that burn. Now at this point, there's nothing to do. Uh, it's not gonna kill your tree. I mean, unless the whole tree really was uh, defoliated early, that would weaken it at least. But uh, just be aware of that. Check your sprinkler systems. Uh, they, when they are properly um, putting out water, there's not a lot of mist. And uh, mist just drifts off target. It's water you paid for and you're not, your plants aren't getting. Uh, and it increases the incidence of disease by keeping things more humid and more moist. So that is just a uh, thing to keep in mind. But I've been seeing that around town. We had a call on it uh, the, or an email on it the other day and I uh, just thought I'd mention that. Uh, we had an email uh, from Linda about uh, what type of cypress tree produces fewer knees. Uh, well, there, there's several types of cypress uh, there, that are grown around the south. Uh, we've got the, the more common um, uh, regular cypress, the, the ball cypress, there's a pond cypress, and there's one called Montezuma cypress. Uh, and the Montezuma is really good about not producing knees. Uh, it, the bald cypress, the one you would see in swamps, it's the primary cypress planted around Bryan College Station, uh, unfortunately. And uh, so you deal with knees. And I moved into a yard with three cypress trees. And I can tell, I commiserate with those of you who deal with those knees coming up uh, as lawnmower targets and ankle twisters and all the other things that they do. Uh, so I'm going to continue this uh answer here in just a moment. But first, I'm going to go to the phones, and we're going to take a call from Jane. Hello, Jane. Hey, Skip. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What's up? Well, I have a question about transplanting a juga. Mm -hmm. I started a new garden back in April, and then and the juga was with some of the plants I put in. And I tried to baby it through the horrible summer, but I did lose about four of the 14 original plants. Okay. Now I, and now I have a personal friend who is quite willing to give me hardy plants uh, tra to transplant from her garden to mine. Mm -hmm. And my question is, do I wait to the spring or can I transplant them now? Either one would be fine. Uh, either either one is fine. Uh, the ajuga, if it has decently moist soil. Uh, and is in uh, enough shade to prevent the stress of the blazing sun, but still yeah. en enough light to support good growth, 
it'll thrive there. Uh, there's some out at the Demonstration Idea Gardens on Highway 21, the Master Gardeners manage out there, and, and it is yeah. just growing like a weed. I mean, it's the nicest ajuga I've ever seen. Uh, so <laughs> under those conditions, it does well. But yeah, you could transplant it now, or you could transplant it later. Just water it in good, and then for a while, uh, you know, give it a little uh, extra water. You know, we generally we say a good soaking on an infrequent basis. Well, with a brand new plant, we change that and we say just a okay. little bit of water on a more frequent basis because it doesn't have the roots reaching down deep far and wide and everything yet so we baby yeah. it along a little bit and you shouldn't have to do that more than a week or two and uh, gosh we're going into the season where the demands are really low sure got it all right good well you uh, answered my question thank you very much all right jane well thank you for the call uh You're going welcome. you bet going back to the cypress question we were working on um, the Montezuma cypress uh, is not as cold hardy and yet I, from what I'm seeing here it seems to be doing okay. Uh, we had one at the demonstration idea garden up at, on 21 the old extension office. Uh, we have a, a ball cypress and a Montezuma and they both look pretty good and so I was kind of surprised coming out of the exceptionally cold freeze but uh, it's native further south significantly further south than us but it seems to be holding up here well so I would look for Montezuma now there are also strains of Cypress that don't tend to produce the knees as much depending on where that that species particular uh, variety of the species originated uh, we used to say Western seed sources you know you go out to the the rivers uh, in south central Texas uh, Uvalde places like that uh, and you don't see the knees out there and those those plants. Uh, but it's really hard to go to a garden center and say, what was the seed source of this tree? They kind of look at you like, what in the heck are you talking about? Uh, but I, so Montezuma is what you can ask for, uh, but there are some other, other options that are very, very hard to find in the trade. Well, let's pause on that now and go back to the phones. The number is 845-5689 and talk to Lewis. Hello, Lewis. Good afternoon, Skip. Great show as always. Thank you. I had a lawn question. Northeast side of the county. It's a um, Boonville sandy loam, which is more like a sandy clay type soil. But I was looking at planting zoysia in the front mm -hmm. and St. Augustine along the back where it's not as easily seen, but probably for me a lot cheaper and a lot easier to take care of. But uh, what are your thoughts on zoysia just as a lawn grass in this I, area? I like it. And uh, with any plant you would ask a question about, it, there's always a yeah, but, right? And, and it depends on what you want out of it and, and where it's growing and how it's cared for. So to, just to be uh, super uh, brief, uh, simplistic, I guess, in the answer, St. Augustine is a great grass when you don't have enough light to grow most every other grass. Now, mm -hmm. it can get so shady St. Augustine won't grow, but... Uh, if, if you've got shady areas, it does very well in a bright, right. bright shade. And it, it is a very uh, soft grass. Uh, it is forgiving of infrequent mowing uh, with things like Bermuda grass. If you let it get tall and mow it, it's like you got a bunch of brown sticks and tan, and it takes a while to re-green back up. But that's not true with St. Augustine. Uh, it does need more supplemental watering to be happy, but it is reasonably uh, drought tolerant. Zoysia 
is uh, comes in several forms. Uh, the type most used for our grasses is Zoysia japonica, which is a broader leaf Zoysia. Nothing near like St. Augustine, maybe a, I don't know, a third or a fourth the width of a St. Augustine uh, leaf, but uh, it's a broader leaf. And it is quite uh, resilient. It, it does pretty well in drought. It also has the underground runners along with the above ground runners uh, in most types of zoysia that uh, are, would make it like sort of like Bermuda, where you know you could scrape the soil uh, with of all plant material on Bermuda and it would come back out of the ground because it's got that underground rhizomes. So mm -hmm. zoysia has that ability, which the negative of that is it has the ability to kind of sneak and crawl into flower beds a little easier. Uh, St. Augustine, you just chop it off at the top and you've taken care of it. Uh, zoysia is a tougher plant, a tougher grass plant. You need a good sharp mowing blade and you need to stay on your mowing schedule. If you let it get tall, it can sort of become lumpy and if your mower blade is not sharp it sort of knocks the, the plants over you know creating sort of a lumpiness to the mowing okay. um, so that would be the other thing on zoysia uh, other than that uh, zoysia is a little less shade tolerant than augustine not a whole lot but uh, i would say it'd be number two on the best for the shade for our area so okay. I don't know, I don't know if that answered your questions or not. But. Well, for a full sun area, I've established a few St. Augustines, and I was old school. I checkerboarded them. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is zoysia is slower growing. You pretty much have to solid sod them. Is that what you're typically seeing? The old zoysia was very slow growing. Uh, the newer zoysias are much much better, but perhaps not as much as St. Augustine. But I'd need a maybe a turf specialist listening would like to call in and and uh, straighten us out on that uh, but I would I don't I wouldn't put plugs you know a foot and a half apart on zoysia uh, if you wanted a fairly quick cover uh, you sure. could you could do that on St. Augustine and by the end midsummer you'd probably be covered but um, right right that's my experience you know yeah any particular varieties of zoysia that are doing best in uh, the county um, so here's here's the trade-off on answering that uh, it there's there's varieties you can get locally and then there's other varieties that do very well that are going to be harder to find and I haven't checked the the different sellers to see just what all they're carrying but uh, some that you might look for one is called Jammer J-A-M-U-R another one oh my gosh uh, Palisades okay. I believe is the one that was released by A&M but there are some other new varieties. And you know what? A lawn is a long-term investment, Lewis. I would appreciate if you would email me at the AgriLife Extension Office and let yes. me get you a better answer to that because I know that I'm not recommending the latest greatest when I, when I well, mention I those. You. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I understand. I will email you, and I appreciate your time on the air. Thank All right. you, Skip. Thank you very much. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845 5689 and by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu well let's see I wanted to mention a couple of other things uh, St. Augustine is due to get those big brown circles in it in fact uh, 
I would have expected them before now, but it's been a little un bit of an unusual year. Uh, but that is large patch. We used to call it brown patch, or there actually is a brown patch, but the one we have here and deal with is large patch. And large patch is the Rhizoctonia fungus. And as it occurs in the grass, it, the, the little mycelia, the fungal hyphae grow out and create a larger and larger circle. Those circles tend to green up in the center because that's the oldest place where the, the leaves died the longest ago. And so then it begins to regreen. It doesn't kill grass. It rots the leaves off the runner. If you wait until you have the yellow, the big circles, then even if you put a fungicide down that stops everything, you're going to look at a green circle all winter because the grass isn't growing. Uh, when spring comes, it'll green up and everything will be fine. So if you don't want those circles, the thing to do is to use a preventative spray. This may be one of the very few times I would recommend uh, a spray product uh, before you even see the problem. Uh, but in the case of, of this, it is. So if you've got a lawn uh, that is predisposed to it by oh, uh, lots of extra water and extra fertilizer, uh, then and you've in the past had those circles appearing in your lawn on a regular basis, then I would definitely use the preventative spray, fungicide sprays. Uh, there are a number of them out there on the market. I don't want to uh, spout out a bunch of, you know, ingredient names that hard to even absorb. Uh, so uh, you can give us a call uh, or if you go to a, a good quality garden center that uh, ha has educated people that are trained in the topics, they can direct you to the products they carry that will work the best uh, on it. But that's large patch. I would definitely not say everybody in town needs to go spray their lawn for large patch. I, I don't think I've ever sprayed it my whole life, but my lawn is managed to be barely above life. Uh, the, in other words, I keep it from being stressed, but uh, it's, uh, it is, uh, yeah, I don't uh, over fertilize for sure, don't over water and so on. And I just haven't had a big problem with it. Maybe I've just been lucky. Well, let's go to the phones now and talk to Ronnie. Hello, Ronnie. Hey, Skip. I just wanted to give you some feedback on this. The guy that asked about zoysia. Yes. I actually uh, I had a, a, a fairly small patch, and I and I I sprigged it out into a much larger patch. And in one year, and it, I would say I put sprigs about eighteen inches apart. Uh, eighteen and, inches. In one, in eighteen inches, about twelve to eighteen inches. Mm -hmm. And about one, in about one year, and this is mainly in shaded area. Okay. It, it completely covered the 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 ground well that's good to know now what, do you know what variety a cultivar it was of zoysia it was uh i think it was um uh, you I, just mentioned it it's one that a&m had had uh, uh palisades yeah it, it was palisades okay all right well and, and i also noticed that it was it's it, it's dominant it's actually taking over uh the bermuda that uh in in other areas that were were there it's 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 spreading enough where it's actually taking over the Bermuda grass, which I thought was surprising to me. That is a little surprising. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little surprised at that. Um, but, okay, good. That's a good report to know. Uh, it These new ones are faster. Um, I, th here's the thing. When you do the plugs and you spread them out, and you, probably, you may have had this to deal with this, but uh, all that bare dirt for the amount of time it takes for it to truly be sunlight block covered, uh, you get a lot of weeds popping up. And you have to deal right. with those in the meantime. So you could either just, yeah, that, 
Go yeah, ahead. There was there was maintenance to get that done. So I mean, it's, it's I, I did a quite a bit of that. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe a half an acre of this. So wow, uh, it would have been kind of cost prohibitive to to, to start it, but. But it, it was it did take some maintenance to, again, like you said, to keep the the weeds out. It wasn't uh-huh. a pretty highly shaded area, so it was a little bit less weed uh, pressure. But so I'm I'm curious. Sprigs is something we we see often with uh, Bermuda grass, sport fields, and things. Uh, how did you end up with? How did you get the sprigs of zoysia? How did you make those or or purchase those? I actually, no, I, I made them. I actually used a post hole digger mm-hmm. and. That's the size of my sprig. I, I just oh, went down in an existing, okay. Okay. An existing area, and I just did, did a little. It's about you know maybe four or five inches. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah. And I got gotcha. you. Use that. Took a pretty good plug. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, a plug is what I would call that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but when you said sprig, my mind went to oh, yeah. literally washing all the dirt off of uh, Bermuda grass and just throw in those rhizomes and runners out there and covering them with a little soil and it'll establish that way too. Well, hey, well, I, that, I, I misspoke. It's more of a, of a like you talked about. Well, it's, I, uh, I appreciate that. I got about 15 seconds left in the okay, show. So thank you. thank you so much for calling, Ronnie. All right. Well, that's good. Uh, well, uh, you've been listening to Garden Success and I hope you'll tell your friends and neighbors about the show and get them listening as well. We look forward to talking to you again next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.